Yaakov Avinu, at the very end of his life, brings each of his sons to him, and he says to Reuven, I'm now going to give you tochacha, I'm now going to rebuke you. He was rebuking Reuven because many years earlier, Reuven had acted inappropriately with the shivcha, with the maidservant of Yaakov, and now Yaakov, at the end of his life, is giving him musr for that, giving him rebuke for that. Now Rashi explains why is it that Yaakov waited years and years and years to do this. <clears throat> why didn't he rebuke Reuven right then? Rashi explains that Yaakov said to Reuven, I'm going to now tell you why I waited all these years. I was afraid that if I were to rebuke you then, <clears throat> you would leave and go to Esav. Therefore, all these years I held it in check. I didn't say it. I didn't want you to go to leave my house and cling to Esav. That's why I didn't give you the rebuke all these years. And that's how Rashi explains why Yaakov waited till the very end of his life to give Musr, to give Tochacha, to give rebuke to his son. Now, I'd like to ask what I consider the very obvious question on this Rashi. And that is, it's difficult to imagine a relationship as close and as endearing as Yaakov and Ruvain. Yaakov was the tremendously giving, loving, kindly father. Ruvain was a dutiful son. But even more than that, <coughs> Ruvain looked at his father as his Rebbe, as his teacher, as his mentor. The esteem that Ruvain looked at his father with, the tremendous respect that he had for his father was unimaginable. His father was a Gadolador. His father was one of the others. <coughs> Ruvain understood that, and Ruvain was not just a son, Ruvain was an extremely loyal Talmud. He learned from his Rebbe, <coughs> he studied his ways, his father was his guide to life, his guide to everything he did. So here's the question. Let's in fact assume that Yaakov told Ruvain much earlier that what he did was wrong and what he did was inappropriate. Why would Yaakov assume that Ruvain is going to run away? He's going to leave the house of Yaakov and go to Esav. But even more than that, if you study what actually occurred, what Ruvain's sin was, you'll see it's even more perplexing. And Rashi explains very clearly Ruvain did not in any sense live with the Pelegish of Yaakov. The Pasuk uses that expression, and Marashi brings the Gemara that explains that's not actually what happened. What happened was that Ruvain's mother was Leah. The, Yaakov had four wives, Rachel, Leah, and the two Shifchas, Bila and Zilpah. The normal place where Yaakov lived, where he slept at night, was in Rachel's tent. He would go to the other Imos at different times, but the normal domicile, the place where he actually lived, was by Rachel. When Rachel died, he moved his permanent place of residence, and he moved it to Bila, to one of the Shifchas, to one of the Pelegishes, and Ruvain felt that was an affront to the honor of his mother. It's one thing if you choose the sister over my mother, but to choose a Pelegish, and to choose a maidservant, a woman who's not fully a wife, to have that be the permanent household instead of my mother, Ruvain felt it was an affront to the honor of his mother. He went into the tent and he threw around all the beddings, he threw around the pillows as a sign of protest. For Ruvain, that was considered so egregious to dare trespass onto what his father was doing, to give his father, so to speak, rebuke, was considered such an egregious act that the Torah says it's almost like he lived with with his, the the and the Pelegish of his, of his father. 
again, Rashi explains that was not at all what happened. He overstepped his bounds. He acted inappropriately in protest for his mother's honor. So here's the question. The sin itself really wasn't that great. Okay, he shouldn't have done it. He shouldn't have stood up for the honor of his mother to that extent. But the sin wasn't that great. And why couldn't Yaakov just tell Ruvain what you did was wrong, <clears throat> give him rebuke, and obviously Ruvain would take it in the best of understanding. <clears throat> Ruvain would understand that Yaakov was only saying it for his good. Why was Yaakov so afraid that for years and years he held in check? Because, Ive, if I give you that tochacha, you're going to go to the house of Esav, you're going to leave the derach and go off. And it sounds very difficult to understand. And to understand this Rashi, I'd like to share with you an interesting little twist in history. The Civil War was one of the worst wars in American history. In fact, it was the single worst war because per capita, there were more casualties and more damage than any other war. 2% of the U.S. population died because it was a civil war south against north, and it lasted for years, four years. The odd part was that the North so outnumbered, so outmanned, so outgunned the South, that the war should have lasted three weeks, a month at most. But oddly enough, the war continued and continued and continued until there was so much bloodshed that the the land was soaked in blood. And Abraham Lincoln felt a tremendous obligation, A, to keep the Union together, and B, to put down the rebels because the bloodshed was untenable. But the North could not win a battle. And finally, in the Battle of Gettysburg, the North won a decisive battle, and Lincoln recognized that as his moment. Because at that point, General Lee, who was the South's hero, the South leader, was defeated. But his army was in disarray. And if at that point the North were to to attack they would completely obliterate the South Army, and the war would have ended years earlier than in fact it did. It would have ended within weeks. And recognizing that moment, Lincoln sent a telegram immediately to General George Meade, who was the North's commander. And he said, attack immediately. We have Lee in our hands. The Potomac, the river, is filled up. He can't retreat back to the South. He can't cross the river. His army is completely beaten. If we just attack now, we can kill them. We'll end the war. Meade didn't move. And Lincoln sent a special messenger. Tell the general he must attack now. George Meade didn't move. And he sent another messenger. Messenger after messenger, telegram after telegram. And he sent, move, do it, attack, attack, attack. George Meade would not do a thing. Within a number of days, the Potomac River settled down. Lee took his army across it, he went into the south, and the war was indefinitely extended, and in fact it lasted years longer, and an incredible amount of bloodshed that shouldn't have been was happened. Because Lincoln recognized the tremendous disservice that General George Meade did to the nation, he wrote a letter. But I want you to listen to the words that Lincoln wrote, and I want you to hear what a diplomatic letter this was. Listen to these words. A letter to George Meade, July 14, 1863, from the Executive Mansion, Major General Meade. I am very, very grateful to you for the magnificent success 
you gave the cause of the country at Gettysburg, and I am sorry now to be the author of the slightest pain to you. But I was in such deep distress myself that I could not restrain some expression of it. My dear General, I do not believe you appreciate the magnitude of the misfortune involved in Lee's escape. He was within your easy grasp, and to have closed upon him would have, in connection with your other late successes, have ended the war. As it is, the war will be prolonged indefinitely, your golden opportunity is gone, and I am distressed immeasurably because of it. I beg you will not consider this a prosecution or a persecution of yourself. As you had learned that I was dissatisfied, I thought it best to kindly tell you why. Signed, yours very truly, Abraham Lincoln. What was General George Meade's reaction when he read the letter? Would you like to know? So too would the world, because no one knows what his reaction was, because he never read the letter. The letter was discovered in Lincoln's desk after he died, because he never sent the letter. And why? Because Lincoln had a policy. If you take away a man's honor, you destroy the person. He never, ever criticized anyone in his professional career. And certainly from the time he was president, there was never a moment that he criticized anyone. And how is that clearly brought out? Because Edwin Stanton, who was his chief of staff, the Secretary of War at, during the war itself, was an enemy of Lincoln for years. And oddly enough, Abraham Lincoln appointed him to be the Secretary of War. And Stanton looked at Lincoln as a giraffe. He used to mock him, he used to make fun of him. But upon watching the way Lincoln acted, he changed. He changed completely and became one of the most dutiful and loyal people to Lincoln. And as a matter of fact, while Lincoln was laying dying and he was shot, Edward Stanton said these words, He is the finest man who ever ruled another man. This understanding that criticism is destructive because it destroys the essence of the person. And if you take away their honor, you destroy the person, is something that Lincoln understood very clearly. And it's something that we often forget. My Rebbe, the Rishiv never gave Musr. Never gave rebuke. Ever, ever, ever. As a matter of fact, the only thing he would ever do is speak in the most circumspect sort of way, in a schmooze, and afterwards he would ask Rabbi Harris or one of the other Bayim, do you think that fellow understood what I was saying? And Rabbi Harris would say, what, what were you saying? Because no one really, the Rosh never would dare give a direct rebuke. And we asked him, why not? We're Talmudim, we want to learn, please. And Rosh said, your tissue paper, if I rebuke you directly, it's going to destroy you. It happens to be I was a close Talmud of the Rishiva Zetzal. And I actually convinced the Rishiva that I have a sturdy enough personality and I could take it. And I asked the Rishiva repeatedly, I want the Rishiva, if the Rishiva feels I'm doing something wrong, I don't want the Rishiva to be beat around the bush. I want, please, let the Rishiva speak directly to me. And in fact, one time I got my uh, request. I had been doing something, the Rishiva asked me to stop doing whatever it was. And a, a few months later, the Rishiva asked, do you still do, and I still was doing it, and the Rishiva said, why? I, t- I, I thought, I told you you shouldn't be doing it. I thought, and he said it in a way, not harsh, and he didn't say it in a way that you would call in any sense yelling, but it was clearly criticism, clearly critical. And I want to explain to you something very, very frightening. 
I loved the Rishiva Zatzal with a tremendous, tremendous Ava. I can't describe the way we Talmidim looked at the Rishiva. He was a, man, a giant of a human being. And we loved him personally because he was such a, a fine person. When he said those words, it was like a wedge. And it took me a number of months, even though I asked for it, and even though it was for my good, and even though I convinced the Rishiva that I could, it was a wedge, and it took me a long time to get back. And I believe that's exactly what Yaakov Avinu understood. And he said to Ruvain, I didn't dare give you rebuke. You know why? Because it would have sent you away. Because you see, the bigger a person is in your eyes, the more that rebuke is a powerful tool to push you away. And the more it damages you, and the more it forces you away. To the extent that Yaakov Avinu was afraid, if I give you direct tochacha, if I give you direct rebuke, who knows what will happen? You'll go to Esau. You'll leave the ways altogether. And it's very, very insightful because <coughs> Ruvain loved his father, Ruvain respected his father, <coughs> Ruvain wanted the rebuke, but Yaakov recognized that any rebuke would have that power. And I'd like to explain to you <coughs> why it works that way. You see, <coughs> there's a very powerful and very interesting <coughs> line in human relations. You see, when I criticize you, it's a very interesting thing that happens. Almost instantly, the minute I criticize you, there's a sense within you, I cannot accept those words. You see, we human beings are not comfortable with the idea of being wrong. And would you like to know why? Not because I'm arrogant, not because I'm conceited, but because part of me comes directly from under Hashem's throne of glory. Part of me, my neshama, is pure, holy, and right, good, and proper. And that part of me can do nothing wrong. And that part of me is so holy, so pure, so proper, it never can do anything wrong. And the only way that Hashem gave us free will was to give us this incredible capacity to believe what we want to believe, and no human being will ever do anything wrong. Find me a heinous criminal. and Find me an evil person. They'll always have an excuse. They'll always have a story. And a few weeks ago, I shared an important story in a bear's repeating. One of the most arch criminals in the 1920s was a fellow who was named as Tugun Crowley. Tugun Crowley was called by the New York City Police Commissioner the most evil person in his time. He would kill at the drop of a hat. Tugun Crowley had his final shootout on the west side of Manhattan. His apartment building was surrounded by 130 policemen on rooftops with machine guns across the way, and it was a shootout for an hour, a battle on the streets of the west side, when 10,000 people from apartment windows and the street were watching. For an hour he kept the New York City Police Department at bay until finally he was shot, and the police broke in from the roof, and they found him slumped over a piece of paper. And the piece of paper was his last will and testament. And in it it said the following, Under my coat lies a lonely heart, but a good heart, a heart that would do no man any harm, and he signed it with his name. The interesting part about the story was that he survived. He was unconscious, and the police took him to the hospital, they operated him, he stood trial. But I'd like to share with you how he ended up in that apartment. A few hours earlier, he was in Central Park with his girlfriend, 
And a policeman on foot asked him for his license and registration. Now, this is the 1930s. There are no radios and no communication. He could have easily driven off and never been caught, never been seen again. But let's not take any chances. <clears throat> instead of just driving off, he reaches into his pocket, and instead of his license and registration, he pulls out a gun, shoots the policeman dead, and jumps out of the car, takes the policeman's service revolver, empties it <clears throat> into the policeman, and then drives off and is caught a few hours later in his apartment. A good heart. <clears throat> a heart that would do no man any harm. Now, again, the interesting part was that he'd survived. He stood trial, and he was sentenced to the electric chair. And on the way to the electric chair, he was overheard saying the words, this is what I get for defending myself. You may assume that he was a psychopath, some type of deviant criminal, but Dale Carnegie in his book, in his seminal book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, writes that this is an ongoing refrain that you'll find throughout human, human race. He writes that he had an entire sequence of letters that he exchanged with the warden of Sing Sing Prison. And the warden explained to him that there's not a man in my prison who's guilty. Everyone has a story, everyone has a reason, they're all innocent. And again, this is not just a fluke of the criminal mind, there's a very important reason for it. Because part of me is great, and part of me is a pure neshama, and I cannot live with doing something so evil, so wrong, so bad. So how could I do it? How do you give the greatness of the human being Bahira? And free will means I could easily do this, easily do that. I could go either way, and I choose. But if I'm an Ashama that's so pure, so holy, that I can't possibly do anything wrong, how do I have free will to do things that are right or wrong? And to allow for free will, Hashem gave us this incredible capacity called imagination. And with this incredible power of imagination, I could believe exactly what I want to believe. Now I'm no longer shackled to what's right, good, and proper. If I want to do X, I can do it. And even though it's evil, even though it's wrong, I can paint an entire picture, I can paint an entire theology, a worldview, a perspective on life that explains why it's good, proper, and appropriate. And if you're not sure that I'm right, read Mein Kampf. 800 pages. Adolf Hitler did not say, kill the Jews because I hate them, kill the Jews because they're bad. He gave an entire worldview, an entire Weltanschauung that explained that he's saving mankind. He's doing good for the, not just the Aryan race, but for humankind in general, because even the most heinous evil criminal cannot do something wrong. That is human being. I never do anything wrong. That's human nature. Now here's the problem. When you tell me I did something wrong, what happens? There's instantly a disconnect. I can't accept it. I can't bear it. I just can't live with it. And therefore, I have to reject it. But there's another interesting quirk of human nature. I'd like to give you a little advice. A little trick how to win any argument. I believe there's a method, a way to win any argument you'll ever get into in your life. And that is very simple. And it's the only way, guaranteed. And the only way to win any argument is to take the other guy's side. Because I guarantee, no matter how powerful your logic is, no matter how flawless your thinking is, no matter what you say, the other person is going to argue, 
And the only thing that happens in an argument is he becomes more entrenched in his position, I become more entrenched in my position, and there is no way to win an argument in a straight head-on manner. The only way, only way in the world to win an argument is to take his position, and suddenly life is different. And if you're not sure I'm right, I do this with couples. It's a wonderful little exercise. You're in this, you're... Okay, guys, I get it, I get it, I get it. I want a little exercise. I say to gentlemen, I say to them, sir, I want you to now tell me her position, and you, madam, I want you to take his position. And if I make them sit there and actually argue the other's position, a very strange thing happens. First of all, you know, what, what, what are you saying? What, what, I didn't get what, 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 It takes a while. To, but once they start saying it, suddenly life changes. Why? Because any time I argue with you, what I'm doing is I'm coming on strong, I'm coming on powerful, and the Archa Sadiqim explains it's human nature. If I physically assault you, if I pummel you, it's nature, it's natural, it's instinctive for you to hit me back. It explains the Urcha Sadiqim just like it's instinctive for you to fight back against me. If I use physical force against you, so too if I use words against you, it's instinctive, it's natural for you to fight back. So when I criticize somebody, number one, there's immediately a disconnect because I can't be dirty, I can't live with that. But even more than that, those words are perceived as damaging as hurtful, and you're attacking me. And the minute that you're attacking me, I have only one choice. I don't even have a choice. I just instinctively fight against you. I'm going to put that down. I'm going to argue with you or argue with it. And I cannot accept it. And the odd part about human beings is that all of us get that. All of us understand that 100% when we're on the receiving end. The problem is and then when I'm on the giving end of it, I forget about it altogether. And it's a very, very interesting phenomena that I'm acutely aware of criticism's damage when I'm the recipient, but I forget all about it when I'm the one giving it. And it's incredible because we all do it all the time. <clears throat> the human being needs a certain sense of acceptance. The human being needs a sense of accomplishment. And I was a high school rebbe for 15 years. I firmly believe that a high school rebbe has two jobs. Job number one is to know Pshat very, very well, understand the material very, very well. That's the smaller part. The bigger part of the job is find the guys doing something right, and find them asking a good question, and find them doing something appropriate, and find them doing something successful, and make sure you notice it. Because human beings thrive on success. Human beings have a hunger for success. We have a hunger to feel good about ourselves because that's the way Hashem created us. And I'll share with you an interesting example of this. When my son, Shalom Ari, was 13, he began playing tennis. And he was very into it and enjoyed it. And we decided we were going to play tennis together. So we bought rackets and we started, you know, we planned the whole outing, etc. And after the first time we played tennis... He no longer was uh, so excited about it, and he very quickly lost interest in the game. Uh, rather odd. <clears throat> I'd like to explain to you why. How did he become interested in tennis? He had an older cousin <clears throat> who had just recently took up tennis, and he invited Shalmari to play, and Shalmari <clears throat> was playing, and he was pretty good. Compared to this other fellow who had never played before, <clears throat> Shalmari was pretty good, and, and his older cousin told him, hey, you're very good. So he felt good about it. He played, he enjoyed it, he played a few more times, he enjoyed it. 
And then he said to me, why don't we play? The problem was, as a kid, I played tennis for about 10 years. I wasn't a pro, but I certainly was pretty good. And even though when I got on the court, I was very careful to just play very easily, my son immediately saw he's no superstar. He's no great talent. And that was a mistake that I made. Because the human being thrives on success. The human being needs success. And one of the most important ingredients in any mentor, any teacher, any parent, is to find a child, find a student doing something right, and make sure you notice it. Because all you have to do to destroy the relationship is find them doing something wrong and let them notice it, make sure they're aware that you notice it, and they're going to feel dirty, they're going to feel ugly, they're going to feel unsuccessful, and they're going to reject the message and reject you. Find them doing something right and let them know it, and they're going to eat it up. They're going to be hungry for it, they're going to accept the message, accept you, and then that's a teachable moment. But it's only when there's a sense of success within the human being, only when there's a sense of acceptance and approval, only then can a person accept and only then can he grow. And this is something that you'll find over and over. Success is like a drug. I used to tell my wife, the number one job of a parent is to be a fan of their kids. Certainly not to be a rebuker, not even to be a mentor, to be a fan Matter of fact, one of my daughters, my daughters are musical, and one of them, when she was playing piano, I used to embarrass her. She told me, no end. Why? Because at the recitals, I would clap the loudest. And it was noticeable. And she was embarrassed. Oh, but it's too, too loud. Please don't, do, please don't do that. Why did I clap so loud? Is it because I have a need? No. <clears throat> because if your children know that you're their biggest fan, <clears throat> you're giving them the greatest chesed, the greatest favor you can imagine. And <clears throat> you're giving them a sense of acceptance, you're giving them a sense of their whole, and you now have built the person up where they're now someone who can grow, someone who can accomplish, someone who can reach great heights. But the minute you do the opposite, it's very sad to see what happens. And I'm sorry to tell you that many times we do it inadvertently, but many times it's rather callous. I'll share with you an example of what I don't mean. When I was newly engaged, I brought my kala to the shul with my parents' And there was a certain Talmud Chacham in the shul who I had very, very little to do with. I Maybe I would say good Shabbos to him. I don't think I ever spoke to him in learning. He knew me, you know, certainly by, I guess by name and certainly by face, but I don't think I ever had a conversation with him. In any case, as we were passing, I, I said, good Shabbos, I just want to introduce my kala. And this person, he turns to my kala and says, oh, you're chosen. We have very few like him. We have very few like him. And he said, good Shabbos, and he walked away. Now I want to share with you the brilliance of what he said. It is true, there are very few like me. Very few with my fingerprints, very few, few with my DNA. As a matter of fact, there's no one in the world like Tigger. And that's me. I am very, I'm, I'm me. He didn't say anything other than we have very few like him. But what my caller heard was, oh, we have very few like him. He must be a... Do you understand the brilliance of what he said? He didn't lie. It's absolutely true. We have very few. In fact, we have no one like him because only he is that person. Only he pays his taxes or, well, back then, as his driver's license. But the point being that those words were powerfully complimentary and gave my kala a good sense of, wow, a hush of chasen, and he didn't say a lie in it at all. 
And unfortunately, there's so many times when we have opportunities like that and we blow it. I can't tell you how many times people say critical lines and people say, kidding around, but eh, you got stuck with that guy, you got stuck with that. But that's not really the fish I have to fry. I would like to share with you the three rules of criticism in existence. I have three rules of criticism, and I believe these three rules will stand you very well if you abide by them very carefully. When you see someone doing something wrong, whether it's your child, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your friend, whether it's a coworker, you feel an obligation to correct them. You feel an obligation to help them, to set them on the right path. And you want to give them your words because your words are intended to, again, help them, make them better. So as long as you abide by the three rules of criticism, I believe you could do it without damaging them. And what are those three rules? The three rules of criticism are, number one, don't do it. Rule number two, don't do it. Rule number three, don't do it. Don't do it because it damages. Don't do it because it separates people. But don't do it, most of all, because it never works. I've never, ever heard someone give criticism to another person, and the other person, oh, you're right, I'm going to change my ways, thank you for letting me know, and all of a sudden they become a different person. You ever notice that the more angry you are, and the more egregious their sin is, and the more clearly you let them know it, the less likely they are to change? But do you understand why? Because the minute you use that tone, in fact, the minute you begin those words, there's an instant rejection of your message and an instant rejection of you. And if you'd like to be a successful human being, don't criticize. By the way, Daniel, Dale Carnegie's book, which is a must-read, I used to tell the guys in my share all the time they have to read it, I used to be shy about saying it in public because you know, it's a secular book. I heard of Miller Zetzal say <clears throat> it's a must-read, at which point I became a lot more confident. It is a must-read. His two rules in human relations. Number one, don't criticize. Number two, find things that people are doing right and let them know it. Because compliments are incredibly powerful. Compliments are empowering. Do you understand the chesed you can do for a person? We all have needs, we all have hungers, and we all have many things that are never met. Most of us have enough of what we need. By and large, we have enough money, we have enough clothing, we have enough, but there's one need in the human being that is never, ever met. And that is the need for honor, prestige, and I don't mean in an arrogant way, but for simple acceptance, a simple sense of, I'm good, I'm accepted, people appreciate me. That is the one need in the human being that is never met. And do you understand the chesed you can do to somebody if you just compliment them? If you just take a moment to notice something that they did well? And it doesn't have to be the biggest thing in the world. And it doesn't have to be an amazing accomplishment. And you notice something that they did right, and you point it out to them, and you mention it, and they understand that you recognize it, what happens is you've given them the greatest gift you can give them. There happens to be another benefit of that, and that is they feel happy, they feel good, and they feel all warm and fuzzy to you. I cannot describe the feeling when someone gives me a compliment. As a high school Rebbe, I received two compliments. One was from my father for grilling the chicken well, 
And it, it didn't really trouble me that much. Baruch Hashem, I don't, uh, my personality is robust enough. But at some point, I did notice that I didn't receive much in the way as a compliment. But okay. In any case, <clears throat> when I began teaching here in Muncie, <clears throat> I was teaching in the Chavetz Chaim here. <clears throat> and at a certain point, Rabbi Foyerman, that's all, was invited to <clears throat> come and critique the Rebbeim and help them in their teaching methodologies. Rabbi <clears throat> Foreman happened to have been my grade school principal when I was in 8th grade. I was very fond of him. I knew him well, and we had kept up a <clears throat> certain connection over the years. He had become a master teacher, <clears throat> and he was hired for a lot of money to go from school to school to help critique and help the Rebbeim do a better job and help them with methodology, and etc. In any case, <clears throat> he was invited into the shiva, and I'm amazed that the principal told me that the next day he would come and observe my class. I was not looking forward to this in a big way. Number one, I liked Rabbi Foreman personally very much, and I respected him. And I knew what this was going to entail. He was not being paid to come in and tell me how good a job I'm doing. I knew, but okay, listen, um, whatever, let's, maybe I can learn, maybe, okay. In any case, I'm teaching, and Rabbi Mazur and Rabbi Foreman come into the class, they sit in the back, and as I'm teaching, I see Rabbi Foreman scribbling away. And I'm teaching, and he's scribbling away. I'm teaching, and he's writing and writing and writing and writing. <clears throat> the class is over, and the fellows left, and Rabbi Foreman said, could I see you now in the office? So I walk in the office, and he, <clears throat> a few warm words exchanged, <clears throat> and then I said, okay, so let me hear. So he said, I want to tell you that was excellent. Phenomenal, the presentation, the engagement. Until me them were right there, it was phenomenal. I said, yes, right? So, no, that, that's it. It was great. It was absolutely masterful. I thought it was great. I said, yeah, but. Now, I was bright enough to know that you don't hire a world-class mechanic and bring him in to tell people that they were good. So, yeah, but what? No, that's it, nothing. I said, but what was wrong? Nothing. It was great, masterful, fantastic. The engagement, it was great, fantastic. And we were done. And I walked out of that room. I was high. And I realized something. At that moment, had he asked me to fly to the moon without a spacesuit, I would have asked him, where is the launch pad? Because when a person is given a bona fide compliment, there's a sense within him of, wow, I feel good. But there's also a sense of, I love that person. He just gave me something, and I can't help but like you. I can't help but feel very good about it. Why? And because that's the way we human beings are. When I interviewed in a certain yeshiva, they asked me to say a shmuz, and I said, I'm not doing it. Why? Because I knew the shmuz, I assume, would be well received, and I didn't want that to bias my decision about whether I fit into that yeshiva or not, because there's nothing like a compliment, and nothing like doing a good job and knowing you did a good job to give you a sense of wow, and give you a sense that I like this place, I like this person, and that is the odd thing about compliments and the odd thing about being praised. Not only do I feel good, but I feel very close to that person. I feel warm and fuzzy. And guess what happens on the flip side of that? The minute you criticize me, and the minute you say something I've done wrong, the exact opposite thing happens. Number one, I reject the message because I can't handle it. I can't see myself as dirty or evil or doing things wrong. What do you mean? I, I'm, I'm, I'm a tzaddik? <clears throat> no, but I don't do things wrong. That's the way we operate. 
If you're not sure that I'm correct, watch what happens as we get closer to Yom Kippur. I, as probably every other occupant of the planet, okay, let's let's start thinking, what, what do I have to do tshuva on? What do you have to do tshuva on? You're tzaddik? No, but I mean, I don't really do a veira. I mean, with an veira, I wouldn't do it. I, you know, oh. And we have this incredible capacity to take what I do and make it right. Whatever I do, good, bad, or ugly, whatever I do, it doesn't matter, it's good. And the minute you stand there and tell me it's not good, you're attacking me. Why? Because the godless Adam, the greatness of the human being, can't accept the fact that I've done something wrong. And now you're telling me I did something wrong, and you're telling me I'm not good enough. And those words are perceived by me as an attack, and I can't help but fight against them. I can't help but reject it. But it's not just that I reject it, and not just that I feel badly about the entire interchange, I no longer feel the same way about you. And it changes the dynamic, and changes the relationship to an extent that's hard to believe. <clears throat> Yaakov Avinu understood that. And even though he knew Ruvain loved him, and even though he loved Ruvain to an incredible extent, and even though Ruvain respected him, and even though Ruvain looked at him as his Rebbe, Yaakov Avinu didn't dare give words of rebuke, because words of rebuke separate, and words of rebuke push away, and words of rebuke, says Yaakov, might have sent you away to Esav. I don't know if we would have actually gone to Esav, but on some level maybe we would have adopted his ways. point is it would have caused a pirud. It would have caused a division, it would have caused a wedge. And the simplest, fastest way to cause a wedge in any relationship is find someone doing something wrong and point it out to them. Because the minute you do that, what you're doing is you're putting a huge wedge between you and that other person. And now we come to an institution called marriage. It is my belief that each of us, all of us, very quickly after that chuppah, become experts at what our spouse does wrong. Experts! Experts at exactly what it is that a spouse does. And we can't help but notice it. I can't help but notice it. If it's her coming late, I can't help but notice it. She's always late. It's always happening. If she's bouncing checks, I can't help but notice it. She's bouncing checks. It's, it's incredible. She has no sense of money. If it's his dumb sense of humor, he's always doing it. I can't help but notice it. We become experts at what a spouse do, does wrong. Now, I'd like to share with you, we're not malicious, we're not evil, but we can't help but do it. And would you like to know why? If you're very, very careful and you study yourself, and what you'll quickly find is that it's your area of strength and your spouse's area of weakness that particularly irks you. If you're a punctual person and she's late, that's the area that's going to bug you and bother you. But I want to explain to you why. Number one, any success that I've had is because of this strength. And what I've accomplished, what I've done is because of this strength, and I see how important it is. And, and she's not doing it. It's so agree. It's so bad for her. It's, so, it's stopping her from being effective. It's stopping her from being productive. Why doesn't she... Uh, what? She should just change it. But more than that, because it's my strength, it's so easy for me. Well, guess what? It's not her strength. And likely it's very, very difficult. But why can't she just change? Just just be on time. It's easy. It doesn't take a lot of work. It's easy. And it doesn't matter what the trait is. If it's neatness, if it's being considerate, if it's being sarcastic, whatever the issue is, invariably you'll find it's your strength and your spouse's weakness. And you can't help but notice it. And you can't help but understand how easy it is for them to just change And unfortunately, then you can't help but point it out. 
And this may sound innocent enough, but it sure ain't innocent. And because I'd like to share with you what happens when you point out to your spouse again and again and again and again what they've done wrong. Well, guess what? No longer do they feel at that moment so warm and fuzzy. No longer do they feel so happy. But no longer do they feel so close to you because you're creating a wedge between you and them. And the more often you do it, guess what? The more often it creates that wedge. And you may say, this is inconsequential. This is not a big deal, Rabbi. This is not like a... I had a woman who came to me and she had a complaint against her husband from day... He doesn't talk to me for weeks on end. All I want is show him bias and he's, he just he won't talk to me. He doesn't do anything. I started talking. I said, tell me, what do you mean? What do you he won't talk. Don't talk. He doesn't talk to me for weeks on end. I say, um, could you explain to me a little bit about uh, what do you think the cause of this might be? So she said, well, I'll tell you the truth. I'm smarter than him. And I think I think that's the cause of the problem. I think I'm smarter than him, and he, and he, and he knows it. He's, you know, I don't mean to be critical, but he's, he's an Amoritz, you know, and, uh, you know, a very simple poor person. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that I think that's the problem. Okay. In any case, I wanted to meet him to get the other side of the story. And obviously I expected this person in work clothes, and you know, coveralls, some kind of farmer or something. In walks a very fine young man. Uh, he's actually learned enough, uh, intelligent enough, and her description of him not being intelligent at all didn't seem to fit. And after speaking to him for a while, I asked him to leave, and I asked to speak to her again. And I said, tell me something. It seems to me he is uh, rather intelligent, and it seems to me he is rather well-spoken. <clears throat> Why do you think uh, there's, there's such trouble? So she said to me, well... Could be, maybe, I, 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 I correct them sometimes. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I'm a dictator teacher in, in high school, and when he says a dartor at the table and he mispronounces a word, you know, I'll, I'll correct him. I said, oh, interesting. Are there other people uh, at the table? At the time? Yeah, some, other, yeah. And sometimes my married kids, sometimes other people. Yeah. I say, aha, uh-huh. I see, aha. Uh-huh. But it turns out it wasn't just when he said a pusik wrong, she happened to have been a very insecure person, and from the time she was a little girl, she was incredibly self-critical. And once she got married, she turned that self-critical nature <clears throat> to her husband to help him as well. And what he was getting was yeoman Valila criticism for everything. He couldn't open his mouth without being, you should say it this way, do it that way, do it that way. And guess what? <clears throat> he didn't love her. She was nothing but a toothache, nothing but a pain in his neck, a pain in his eye. He was just how do you live with a person who's constantly correcting you, constantly putting down, and guess what? And there is no way that he could possibly, unless he's, I don't know, Avram Avinu maybe, but I don't even know. And if you think that this is just the extreme case, I'm telling you, it's something that happens in most marriages, and it's something that's incredibly important to be careful of. Because those words, innocently enough, and even intending for the good, cause a separation. And folks, it's not just marriage. It's for sure in terms of parenting. The greatest favor you can do your child is to find them doing something right. The biggest avla, the worst thing you could do for your child is to find them doing something wrong. But Rabbi, how am I going to discipline them? I don't know the answer to that, but one thing I guarantee, you want to catch them finding doing things right, you don't want to catch them doing things wrong. And the more you're constantly pointing out to them what they're doing wrong, and the more likely it is that you're causing a separation, you're causing a period, 
and you're making it very difficult for them to like you and to love you. And I believe Yaakov Avinu understood that because he understood the human nature. I can't accept not being good. I can't accept not being appropriate and proper. And the minute you tell me that, I reject that message. I reject you. Yaakov Avinu was afraid that Reuven would leave because that's the human nature. Abraham Lincoln understood that and wouldn't say words of rebuke, words of criticism, no matter what the cost. And if you would like to see the extent of this, I'll share with you one observation. And the Gemara asks, what caused Ruvain to actually admit the fact that he was wrong? And what caused him to publicly admit? And the Gemara says, when he saw Yehuda admit that he was wrong, and then Ruvain was able to publicly admit that what he did was wrong. Now here's a very interesting observation. Ruvain, the Medrash tells us, sat in ashes and cloth, ash, sack and ash cloth, ashes and sackcloth for years after this sin. Again, even though his sin was not as egregious as the Torah calls it, even though he just stood up for the respect of his mother, but he did overstep his bounds, and it was an affront to the honor of Yaakov. And when he went in and rearranged the bedding, it was something that was considered wrong. And for that, he did tshuva. As a matter of fact, when Yosef was in the bar, Ruvain wasn't there. Why? Because that was the day that he would sit. Once a month, he would sit in, in Tainus, fasting, to do tshuva. So he knew what he did was wrong. And not only did he know that he did was wrong, he did tshuva for it. He couldn't admit it until Yehuda admitted then he could admit it publicly, but clearly he understood it. Why then couldn't Yaakov Avinu give him rebuke for it? He knew it was wrong, he fasted, he did... Why could... The answer is because when you say it to me, it's very different. I know what I did was wrong, and I know I have to make repairs for it, that's okay. But the minute you tell it to me, forget about it. And I want to end with just one example, and it may seem small, but it's exactly at this point. As a high school Rebbe, I tr- uh, tried to keep a good Kesha with the guys, and breakfast was a very good time to talk. And unfortunately, oftentimes it was that I would speak with the guys during breakfast, and I would come late to shear. Not terribly late, five minutes late, six minutes, whatever, a few minutes late. <clears throat> Probably my closest friend at the time was Rebaruch Davidovitz. He was the Menahel, the principal. And <clears throat> um, one day, as I'm coming up to breakfast, and I'm giving myself Muslim, well, you come in late, this Bittal Torah Rabin, what's wrong with you? Are uh, you big shot because you're talking to the guys? It's wrong, and I would rebuke myself, and I'd be really upset with myself as I'm coming up. In the nicest, gentlest way, Rebarak says, "You know, maybe, maybe we could start here on time. It'd be better for the, you know, for the yeshiva." And in my mind, I say to myself, "A chutzpah." He's telling me. And I said to myself, "Wow, isn't it interesting?" I was just giving myself rebuke, saying how wrong it is for me to come late. He's the principal, it's his job to tell, and he says it in the nicest way, and suddenly I'm an affront, I feel it's, I'm insulted. Because that is the human. I can know it, I can understand it as clear as day. But the minute you tell me, I, I, I have to reject it, it's, you're assaulting me, you're attacking me, I reject the message, I reject you, and the rules of criticism are, don't do it. Rule one is don't do it, rule two, don't do it, rule three, don't do it. Don't do it because it causes damage to the other person. Don't do it because it causes a separation. But more than anything, don't do it because it doesn't work. It does nothing good. It only damages. And that rule is something that you need to take with you throughout every relationship in life. 
And now, let's open the floor to questions. I talked longer than I intended to, longer than I wanted to, but but this is an important topic. So let's open the floor to questions. Please feel free to raise your hand if you have a question. Um, if you're shy, uh, I understand that. If you're very shy, you could type the question in. Typing it in is anonymous. But the truth be told, even if you raise your hand, you're still anonymous because it's just a voice. But please feel free to ask questions if you have questions. Um, I do have, by the way, also please feel free to email questions in ahead of time. Um, if you send them into Rebbe at the schmooze.com, R-E-B-B-E at the schmooze.com, um, please feel free. I do have a number of questions that we emailed in for tonight. Uh, if we have time, I'll try to get to them. Um, uh, so let's take Avram's question hand up, and then I'll t- hopefully take one of the uh, email questions in. Avram, you have the floor. Good evening, Eddie. Good evening. Hi. Um, the interesting question is, um, the interesting question is, is that sometimes you have scenarios that come up where it's you need to say something. I don't know whether the, the child is uh, doing something dangerous. I don't know. You come home and supper is too punk or uh, I don't know, roll, right. or you, I don't know, whatever. And you, and you come home and you have to say something. Right? You have to say something, right? You have to say something because if you don't say something. Your wife won't know that she burnt the supper. If you don't you say something, <laughs> what? No, because you can't. You can't eat the. You can't eat the food. So if you don't eat the food, this is upset. If you say something, you're upset. Or let's say the child's jumping and I don't know doing something harmful. You just don't stop the child. It, whatever. But how do you? How do you do it in such a not critical way? Okay. But at the same time, say something. <clears throat> All right. Let's let's talk about children. And the rule with children is you set limits. You set limits, and you have consequences to those limits. But it's dispassionate. It's nothing to do with me. There's a limit. And the limit is, this in our house, this is how it's done. And if it's too difficult for you, I understand, but then you, we can't have whatever it is. Usually the rule is, there's a direct consequence. There's a limit, very clearly delineated, very clearly expressed. And if the limit is broken, there's a direct consequence, hopefully directly correlated to it. And the consequences should be very, very small, minute things that you can constantly increase so that you can not have to throw away your entire arsenal of punishments in one fell swoop. What I mean by that is the following. You know, the child does something terrible, you're grounded for a week, you're grounded for the rest of your life until you're bar mitzvah, until you're you're married. Basically, what you did was you shot yourself in the foot because you, you threw away anything. So if you set a very real limit, and then there's a consequence. I don't want this consequence to happen. You don't want I don't want it. But if, in fact, this limit is broken, then you're going to... We, we can't have that toy at this time because only children who have, uh, follow the rules can have the toy. Now, if you have to take away the toy for the five minutes or the ten minutes or whatever it may be, it's not between me, me and you. And it's not because I'm upset. If you take your fist and smash it into the wall, and your fist hurts. It's a natural consequence... These toys are only for children who can use them appropriately, and if they're not used appropriately, we have to take them away because it's too hard for children. You know what I'm saying? It's not me. It's not you. There's no criticism. There's a limit. There's a very clear consequence, hopefully directly related to it. And again, it's this passion. It's not me. I would love to not have this punishment. I would love to there'd be no limits. I wish we could have, do anything we wanted. All the, but unfortunately, this is a rule in the house. Yeah, but Abba, I know you're making the rules. These are rules. These are rules in the house. When your kids are little, it's easy. 
The problem is when your kids become teenagers. Whoa! Baruch um, Patrani, I believe I'm basically out of that. Uh, my wife and I are out of that stage. Uh, we have one son, 17, but he, all right, he's left, but we're basically past that. But woe to parents when your kids become teenagers. One of the questions, by the way, emailed in. I'm sorry to put you on hold for a minute, but here's one of the email questions. How does criticism work in regards to Chinuch especially if it's not an easy teenager? My wife and I have been struggling with this for a while. Okay, so what do you do with the difficult teenager? So what you do is you tell them again and 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 again, and what you discover is, guess what? It doesn't do any good. It does no good whatsoever. <clears throat> so you have a choice. <clears throat> if you're dealing with a behavior that's severe enough that you need to restrict it, <clears throat> there has to be a consequence, and it has to be clearly delineated and defined exactly what happens. If this happens, uh, listen, I'm not going to be upset, but this, this is the rule. <clears throat> you know, you, your son learns to drive. <clears throat> the rules of using the house and the car are X, Y, and Z. And I understand sometimes it's very difficult, sometimes it's hard, but these are the rules. And if you're not able to abide by the rule, I understand, but then you can't use the car for a day, and two days, whatever it may be. And it only has to be very small. It doesn't have to be you lose the car for the next 20. Little small things are usually enough as long as it's clearly delineated and there's a direct consequence. So, But again, it's not easy to... To parent teenagers, I'm not telling, especially in our generation, it's a lot harder. <clears throat> but the rule of thumb is avoid criticism like the plague. The more you can catch your kids doing things right, the more you can catch them being stars, the bigger gift you're giving them. The more you catch them doing things badly, the more you're damaging them and damaging the relationship. So if you have to discipline, again, you do it dispassionately without the <clears throat> personal criticism. But <clears throat> if you have to do that, make sure that you find things that your kids do on a regular basis that they shine in and you point it out and you notice it and you make sure that they notice that you notice and because whatever you do on a negative you have to do much more on the positive can negate that. Avram, does that answer your question a little bit? Oh. Okay, a little bit good. Okay. A little bit. Okay, good. All right, good. Thank you. Okay. Again, please feel free to raise your hand. I also have to mention, only because I have mentioned this before, but I have to mention it again only this evening because it is so applicable. The ten really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make. The book is not published yet. It will not be in the stores until Sukkot, and maybe not even until Hanukkah, because it's a paper now. It's crazy. Since COVID, publishers don't have paper. I I can't normally print with Feldheim in Israel. It's a six-month delay because I can't get the paper. So I'm probably going to print it here, but it's, nevertheless, it's not going to be in the stores for a while, but there are pre-publication copies. It's the same book as the final book, but it's the, the pre-publication. If you would like a copy, a pre-publication copy of the 10 really dumb mistakes that very small couples make, please go to shmooz.com. I think it's a great um, guidebook for a successful marriage. That's what it, what it is. It's a, I call it the Torah Guide to a Successful Marriage. It's a Torah-based guide because it deals with a lot of the common sense, a lot of the basics of what a successful marriage needs. Unfortunately, we often miss it. In any case, if you'd like a copy, if you go to the schmooze.com, you'll see on the top there's a banner. You'll click it, it'll bring you right to an Amazon link, and you can purchase it, and it arrives uh, in, in a short amount of time. 
um, you could also, if you don't remember how to spell the schmooze, the schmooze is spelled T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com. The easiest way to get the book is to go to the schmooze.com, <clears throat> click on the link on top, and it'll take you right to the Amazon link. Again, it's T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com. If for some reason you can't remember how to spell the schmooze, you can go to Amazon, but then you have to remember the whole title of the book. It's 10, the 10 really dumb mistakes that very small couples make. It's a lot easier to just go to the schmooze and, and click. But again, I, I highly recommend it. I think it's very, very important. And I'm also, I'm also looking very much for feedback on it before it actually publishes. I could still make certain changes. So, um, A, I would like to start creating some hype, let people be aware of it. And B, I'm looking for feedback, so please uh, <coughs> grab a copy. Um, okay, I'm, I apologize that we've run out of time. I <coughs> thank you very much for joining. I hope to see you next week. Mitzvah Shem.